Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So what I'd like to cover today is uh, some Heart Sutra, like every other day. Uh, Then there are three people who are giving talks on the Heart Sutra today. Who are they again? So in one, two, three, this order. So that'll happen after I talk for a bit. And then uh, I want to do a group exercise together to kind of ground what we're doing. Hopefully there's time for all that. If there isn't time for all that, we'll do the group exercise the next day we meet. And at some point in there, we'll have a break, and we'll also talk about how to go swimming together at the end of the day. Um, And also, have you seen the flying cranes? (laughs) That's really incredible. One day they're on the windowsill, the next day they're floating. It's amazing. It's almost like they have strings holding them up or something. (laughs) Uh, So let's just uh, um, do a little bit of summary to go forward because I think that there was a section that I felt like we went through a little fast, which is basically the whole thing. (laughs) We we could keep working on the title for a while. No eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and no mind. No color, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, and no phenomena. No realm of sight, no realm of consciousness. No, And and that section, that ends right there, no realm of consciousness. Um, So we're learning how to do deep prajnaparamita which is how to course through deep wisdom, deep compassion. Uh, Practically speaking, that's a lot like in sitting meditation, when you're sitting with a thought for long enough that you start to see the thought empty itself out. Um, In Tibetan Buddhism, this is called self-liberation. This idea that thoughts self-liberate, which is a beautiful idea, um, that you don't have to liberate your thoughts that they liberate themselves. And I remember once studying with a wonderful teacher who we, we were practicing in a space like this, if you can imagine this glass wall, but there was a, a road outside, a busy street, and a sidewalk with people going by. So she was teaching about this Buddhist idea of self-liberation, and she took a $5 bill, and she went outside, and she put it on the sidewalk, and then she came back in, And she got us to close our eyes, and then we opened our eyes, and then the $5 bill was gone. And then she said, there, (laughs) self-liberated. So that teaching really stayed with me. This idea that um, thoughts are this thing we feel like, this stuff that we need to let go of. But in actual fact, we were never holding on to it in the first place. And so the thoughts, they're just liberating themselves. And so that's seeing the empty nature of thoughts that when you look really clearly, they don't have the substantiality that you think they have. Now, in early Buddhism, which we call Theravada Buddhism, which is the Pali Canon uh, Buddhism, traditional Buddhism, they call it, um, you know, the Heart Sutra is really knocking uh, Theravada Buddhism in many ways. Um, This section, unfortunately so, I think, because... One of the Buddha's core teachings in a text called the Satipatthana Sutta 
is that if you just give attention to the inhaling and exhaling patterns, then over time we start to loosen up a little bit. And when you can allow the breath to come and go, then you can expand the radar to also include sensations and feelings. And when you can allow sensations and feelings to let go, then to, 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 to come and go, then you can also include thoughts and eventually everything, anything. And this comes from a wonderful uh, teaching that he gave. Well, actually, before that, the nice thing about teaching in that way is that it's not a, a belief system you have to take on. So the Buddha's teachings are always accessible, right? um, really practical, and verifiable. And that's the most important. That every statement that the Buddha offers, he always follows through with a way to practice it so that it's verifiable. Um, his teachings have very little ambiguity. And his uh, core teaching on the six sense spheres, I think, could be, if you were looking at his teachings from the perspective of verifiability, the actual core teaching of the Buddha. Because when the Buddha teaches about the nature of consciousness, he does it in a way where you can verify it in your own meditative experience. Or even as a thought experiment. Right? I remember reading about Einstein and that Einstein, his biographer, says whenever he had a major breakthrough in his life, uh, some radical new idea, it always happened during a time where he was trying out thought experiments. So this is something he did a lot. He would take solitary time and he would create a thought problem. Like, for example, what is a self? And he was struggling with these thought experiments where he would have these, these breakthroughs. So you could say the Buddha is doing this too, right? How am I going to talk about what a self is? Well, he, he creates this thought experiment and it ends with the five skandhas. And, you know, I'm not big on the five skandhas, but even if you tried to create more skandhas, somehow it always comes back to these five. You can't have less, you can't have more. Um, but in the next teaching that the Buddha gives, uh, after the Satipana, Satipatthana Sutta, it's called the Sabha Sutta, which means the all. And in it, the Buddha teaches, what is the all? Like A-L-L. What is the all? Um, and here's how the sutta goes. By the way, this is, I think, the shortest sutta in the Pali Canon. Sutta is the Pali word, Pali word for sutra. Monks, I will teach you the all. That's a pretty <laughs> inflated thing to say. That's like Ken Wilber has this book called A Brief History of Everything. I always thought, you know, if some guy has a shaved head and is going to teach you everything... You should be careful. Well, anyways, the Buddha's doing it right here. Monks, I will teach you the all. Listen and pay close attention. I will speak. As you say, the monks respond. Then the Buddha said, What is the all? Simply the eye and forms, ear and sounds, nose and aromas, tongue and flavors, body and tactile sensations, Intellect and ideas. This, monks, is the all. Anyone who would say, repudiating this teaching of the all, I will describe another, if you question that person on what exactly might be the grounds for his statement, they would be unable to explain, and furthermore, they would be put to grief. Why? Because it all lies beyond what is knowable. So is the Buddha saying, if you want to know the all, all you have to know is the six sense spheres. If somebody comes to you with a spiritual teaching that you can't verify in your six sense spheres, the Buddha, say, the Buddha says that is not to be trusted because uh, it's unknowable. It's not knowable. So you can hear his earthiness, right? Maybe he'd be brown. Um, so I think that if you were an academic and you were studying this at university it's pretty dry 
to say, oh, the all is just your eye and your nose and your tongue. But actually, for those of us who are meditating, who are really doing deep practice, this is the core window to see the whole logic of how the Buddha taught. And I was trying this out at lunch a little bit. So I was saying, but I was having lunch with my son, I was playing around with this, but he didn't think it was interesting. But <laughs> The tongue, when you have a tongue, we all have a tongue, and especially in this retreat, I hope you're noticing how much your tongue does. Right? We've really been studying the tongue. And you'll notice when you want to eat something that your tongue produces saliva. Saliva is produced. So for there to be taste, there has to be a tongue, there has to be moisture, and there has to be some food. Right? You could argue the tongue could taste itself, but that's probably the residue of food. Mm-hmm. And then there has to be a knowing of taste. I know there's, there's taste happening. Mmm, this food is good. So there are many conditions. If you take any one of those conditions away, there would be no taste. So if you took the tongue away, there would be no knowing of taste. If you took the food away, there would be no knowing of taste. If you took moisture and saliva away, there would be no knowing of taste. The whole thing collapses. And there's no tongue consciousness. There's no taste consciousness. Right? Now, if you do this as a meditator, it's really interesting because what you see is behind... I think it's closed, yes. The nature of children. Next workshop. I forgot. Yeah. Yeah. What is that sound? (laughs) So... Um, there's nothing that stands behind taste consciousness. You see? If there's no tongue, then the whole thing doesn't exist. You know, there's a famous story of uh, someone asking Shinra Suzuki, if a tree falls in the forest, does anybody hear? And his response, it doesn't matter. (laughs) So you have this triangle where you have a sense organ, the eye, a sense object, the paper crane hanging on the window. And then the third piece is when they have contact, then you have eye consciousness. Right? But there's no consciousness that's behind that. And when there's no eye, the consciousness doesn't happen. And there's six kinds of consciousness because there's six sense organs. The five ones we're used to and the mind. And the mind is like a sense organ only because... If the nose picks up some aroma, then you have a sense organ, and then you have a sense object, and then you get nose consciousness. In other words, awareness of, of scent. I know I'm smelling something, right? But with the mind, a meditator starts to see as the mind settles that thoughts come and go, and you don't make them. So yes, you can contribute to the sound field, right? You can contribute to the sense field, the the the, the uh, nose field. You know, you pass gas or something. You contribute to the thought field. That's a lot of gas, brain gas, right? And then um, you start to see that the mind operates just like any other sense organ, right? That it can just watch thoughts come and go, and you are not the thinker. You can have thoughts with no thinker. So, the Buddha is saying that what is the all? The all is eye and form, ear and sound, nose and aroma, tongue and flavor. The purpose of that is not to make a philosophical statement about consciousness, but so a meditator can see that there are these moments within every second where the sense organs having sense consciousness, but it isn't happening to anybody. There isn't anything behind it, you see. And then the mind intuits something behind it, and we get a sense that it's happening to a me. But as soon as you say to yourself, that's happening to me, that's just more mind consciousness, you see. 
But consciousness is conditioned. And this is what's different about the Buddhist perspective that you don't find in previous forms of Indian philosophy is this idea that consciousness is conditioned. Usually we think that consciousness or awareness is the unconditioned. The Buddha is saying here consciousness is actually conditioned and that it's verifiable. That if you're really courageous enough to look in your experience, you see that there isn't a me that stands behind the experience. And if you do see a me behind the experience, that's also another thought construct. So it's this infinite loop you get into that you can't find a behind, a behind, the behind. So there is no getting through to a real me, self, or you can't just peel away. The Buddha would probably say, where do you get this idea that you should be getting through to a real self? Yeah. And then why is the real self made into a thing? Why is that important? Yeah. What part of you needs there to be something behind it? But the Buddha is also not saying there's nothing behind it. Right? So if you hear this teaching, I'm going to teach you the all. Listen. <laughs> He has to say this. Listen. It's very hard to listen to this. And then the Buddha never says, there is no self behind this. He doesn't say that. He's just saying, if you want to know what's verifiable, basically between the lines he's saying, I'm suffering. And I've really worked out the cause of suffering. And the major reason why I suffer is because of this relentless self. So I can help you to see through that. And how do you see through it? This is how. You see the all. How do you see the all? You study the sense spheres. Okay? But there's no uh, thing behind it. The Buddha doesn't say that. That's what I'm saying. And I'm saying it because if you verify your experience, you can't say there's something behind it. But then you can't say there's nothing behind it because that's putting yourself in another position. Well, there's absolutely nothing behind it. Well, verify that. And you can't verify a negative in that way. Yes? Is he also saying that they're always different for each of us? Because we perceive things in different ways. Yes. Uh, the is yeah. Yeah. Subjective. Pretty much. Really values subjectivity. Yes. So does it, could you say that it always, the consciousness always activated in relationship. Yes. There's always a relationship. But there's no such thing as consciousness without relationship. Mm -hmm. But So now the Heart Sutra is going to take this way further and say all there is is relationship. There are not even things in relationship. There's just relationship and relationship. So forget about yourself and, and love. Because that's all you got. So the way Avalokiteshvara says it to Shariputra is no eye, no ear, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind. Those are the six sense organs. And now he's going to name the six sense objects. Color, sound, smell, taste, touch, phenomena. And then, instead of using the word consciousness, it's realms. So then there's no realm of sight. No realm of listening. No realm of tasting. No realm of consciousness. So, you could argue that actually um, the Heart Sutra uh, and Theravada teachings are actually saying the same thing. So, the Heart Sutra is just saying it more sarcastically. Just to remind you, like, when we say that there is only consciousness because a sense organ and a sense object come together, don't actually believe that there's a sense organ and a sense object or sense consciousness. That's also not true. That's also not true. How can you verify love? 
can you verify love? Anybody? I hope she feels that way. <laughs> How do you verify love? Well, actually, the Buddha never talks about love. It's something people say a lot about the Yoga Sutra, too. Look at all this teaching about compassion, and Patanjali never says it. So, the danger of saying the word love is that then you have an idea of it. So I take a little risk and I say it. But it's like about as specific as saying God. Um, but I hope it's a byproduct of what we're doing together. How do you know it's happening? That's a good question. I, I would say a little less self-reference a little more joy, a little lighter. And the willingness to take the risk of really caring for others um, over and over again in the face of impermanence. It's pretty painful to love somebody. Because things change. Well, what are you going to do? It's painful to meditate, but what are you going to do? (laughs) You're probably here because you've been doing all the things that you would have done, and now you realize that that's not actually going to be that satisfying. I remember when my son's mother and I split up, and I said to myself so seriously, you know, I'm never going to do this again. No more relationships. (laughs) A few years. (laughs) Have you ever been in that phase before? I had this in my 20s too. It was like, no more relationships, I'm being coming a monk. And then you get to the monastery and it's like, oh, there's other people here. I have a friend who said, I was never angry until I went to a monastery. (laughs) So, uh, a couple notes here that I've made about this. The, The first is to remember that in Buddhism, suffering doesn't mean just anguish, um, Suffering also doesn't mean what most people translate it as. The word I saw the most when I was doing my research was the word pain. Mm -hmm. Um, But suffering is more the restlessness of experience. The, the, The way that experience generates trouble for us. So I would translate dukkha as restlessness. That kind of restlessness that's always in experience. Sometimes it's mild and sometimes it's terrible. And suffering is also not knowing how to nourish ourselves. Because we're restless. And that can also take mild forms, and it can be pretty extreme. We can go for decades in the wrong job, the wrong relationship, the wrong place to live. I mean, just everything is wrong, and we don't want to see it. And then we want to protect the wrongness, because it's so threatening to see otherwise. That's how deep the scars go. Um... And all this is being said by Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, the one who hears the cries of the world. And some of you know her image, well, his image becomes a she when she gets to China, as Kuan Yin, or in Japan as Kanzion, or Canon. And there is Kuan Yin, uh, my favorite images of Kuan Yin, and if you remember the old center of gravity, we had a statue of her, um, a really beautiful bronze one where um, she's holding a vase you know, 
and she's on an ocean, which is the ocean of samsara, which I usually translate as domestic life. (laughs) And she's balancing on the ocean of domestic life. And if you look at her alignment, it's not quite samastitihi, (laughs) right? And what I always love about Kuan Yin is that she's never standing straight up. She's always like just getting her balance. She's surfing. She's surfing. And um, in her hand is this jar, this vase. And she's crying. And her tears are flowing into the vase. And then in many images, in the one we used to have, the vase is turned back towards the ocean. So she's taking all of the tears that are possible to to hold. And she's holding them in this vase, which are your tears, too. And then she's pouring them back into the ocean, back into samsara, which is salt water. So all of your tears that you take so personally because you haven't realized the Heart Sutra, Kuan Yin's holding them for you. And then she's, she's turning them upside down and just dumping them back into the ocean. Because that's where they come from. All the oceans are filled with human sadness. It's just all of our tears that made the ocean. Or it's the other way around. Maybe it's all these oceans that have created our, our tears. And that's why it's really important to cry. With joy and with happiness. Because you let the ocean move through you. And you feel that it's not also personal. So here's how Charles Bukowski says it. This is a poem of his that he wrote later in his life called Bluebird. If you know some of Charles Bukowski's work, his, his poems towards the last decade of his life, where he, his life, he was just a mess. I don't know if any of you have ever seen pictures of what he looked like in the last 10 years of his life, but it's amazing he was alive. It, it was really hard to look at his face because he was such an alcoholic just destroyed himself. You know. But his poems got so simple. It's remarkable. And uh, so here's, here's a poem from that time. There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I'm too tough for him. I say, stay in there. I'm not going to let anybody see you. There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I pour whiskey on him and inhale cigarette smoke, and the whores and the bartenders and the grocery clerks never know that he's in there. There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I'm too tough for him. I say, stay down. Do you want to mess me up? Do you want to screw up the works? Do you want to blow my book sales in Europe? (laughs) There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I'm too clever. I only let him out at night. Sometimes... When everyone's asleep, I say, I know that you're there, so don't be sad. Then I put him back. But he's singing a little in there. I haven't quite let him die. And we sleep together like that, with our secret pact. And it's nice enough to make a man weep, but I don't weep. Do you? It's not a nice nice I don't weep. Do you? Um, when I was preparing to give the talk today, I also was thinking a lot about um, uh, your, you, you guys. And so many of you are doing amazing work in the world. And we haven't talked about that so much. Um, artists, uh, people learning how to teach other people how to sit, how to practice yoga, take care of themselves occupational therapy, firefighting, nursing, you know, uh, Kit, who had to leave for some, some family issues, um, uh, did, you know, rescue work. Um, teacher? How old are the kids you work with? Twelve? 
but then also just the work of um, like taking care of your parents who are getting old taking care of your kids who don't get old fast enough (laughs) Um, and when you do loving work and compassionate work when you really get this heart sutra pumping through your blood the response is you want to care for people you want to serve the world and we're living at a time where we've had incredible technical medical achievements. Unbelievable. You know, we've been doing work in uh, Center of Gravity on Death and Dying. And so I went twice to visit a hospital because I, I was uh, meeting with an ethicist there to get some advice about how to talk about death and dying. And one of the things that I, he talked about a lot is he said, look on this warp. There's 25 people on ventilators. It's the most common thing. Right there. If you look out the hall, 25 people on ventilators. And most of them write in their living will that they don't want any heroic measures taken. Well, isn't a ventilator a heroic measure? What's a heroic measure? A ventilator is a heroic measure. It's an amazing thing. So we have this incredible technical achievement happening. Right now, there's this case going on in the Supreme Court in Canada of this this local family here whose son was in an accident, who became a vegetable, right? Was in a vegetative state. And uh, the family, so there's the opposite story we usually hear, wanted to keep him alive. So I think October 10th, 2010 is when he went into the hospital. Now, here we are in July of 2012. He's still there in the intensive care unit. So he hasn't left the intensive care unit. And the hospital's saying, do you know how much money this costs to keep this person alive? And the family is saying, he's going to stay alive even though he can't communicate. And then, just three weeks ago, he moved a thumb. He moved a thumb. So the family is saying, do you know what kind of life somebody could have if they are able to move a thumb? I mean, they could learn how to communicate. They could push a wheelchair button, right? They could do all kinds of things with robots, you know? So no matter what it costs, he should be alive. So it's in the Supreme Court now. And I think in a week, there's going to be a decision about what to do. So we have this incredible life of medical, technological achievement. And existentially, we're so poor. You go into a hospital and we know how to try and alleviate your pain, but we don't know how to work with your restlessness. We don't know how to work with unsatisfactoriness. We don't know how to work with your suffering. Not so well. If you have a migraine headache, we can do our best to medicate you. But, you know, people who have chronic pain, I don't know if any of you have had chronic pain, will tell you that the medications, they don't work. They alleviate some pain some of the day. But as helping people, as people who are going to care for our elderly parents, as people who are going to care for our kids, or as people who work with 12-year-olds, we need to know how to serve in a way that's transformative for us and for others. And that's why this practice is so powerful. Because you're really learning how to be in your life. And that's something that 12-year-old girls really need to learn. How to be in your life. Charles Bukowski, for all his suffering, was in his life. He could admit that there was a bird in his heart that he couldn't let out very much. Just to admit that. Some of us, like we won't admit it. Just keep running around, this job, that job, this person, that person, this house, that house. And then there's this restlessness we're not looking at. Um, so I wanted to mention uh, three states of mind that I think come up in modern times around the Heart Sutra. And the first is 
pathological altruism. This is from reading too many spiritual books about saints and bodhisattvas. Pathological altruism. This is when you forget about yourself and you just go saving people out of idealism. And with therapists, you know, I've worked mostly with therapists and most therapists, they don't burn out because of their work or how many clients they see. They burn out because under the surface they have bad theory. And the theory is trying to save people. Have you tried this with your parents yet? (laughs) And maybe it's more true for women. Because women have something built into them via the culture where they can easily give themselves up to care. Yeah. Is that what um, Chagat Trumpa calls idiot compassion? Idiot compassion, yeah. sure. Yeah. Yeah. And the other group of people who have it are people who had to be therapists for their parents where you have a parent, one or the other, who doesn't have such good boundaries, you know, and you're their confidant. And then it's hard for you to know how to take care of yourself because you're always trying to take care of your mom or your dad. And in nursing literature, this is called an edge state. So in caregiving, when you get pushed to the edge one of the most common edge states is called pathological altruism. Which is you get pushed to the edge, and when you're in that edge, when you really look at the core belief inside your behavior, that's a belief that you can save anybody. And that you have to. Um, And this is a kind of self-harm. This is a a kind of way of harming yourself. Um, I saw this really corny thing on Oprah that Karina and I have been talking about a lot lately. Because on Oprah, they had this couple who had like seven kids or something. Like all these couple who have tons of kids. Seven was like the small amount. There are like 10 kids, 12 kids, you know. And they were interviewing all these parents like, how do you do it? How do you do it? And this one couple who had seven kids, they said, oh, well, we just put, we put ourselves as a couple first. <laughs> so this is like the corniest thing. and I just like, I couldn't get this out of my mind thought, this, that's, an, that's amazing it's like when you're on the airplane and they say you know if you're with someone and you have to put an oxygen mask on them make sure you put yours on first so the second edge state is of course burnout But in uh, literature on burnout, they have a new name for burnout, which is called vital exhaustion. The definition of vital exhaustion is as follows. When a caregiver is unable to create a proper separation or boundary between him or herself and the person or institution for which he or she works. So when you can't create a boundary between yourself and the person you're working with, or, and I find this interesting, between yourself and the institution you work with. And what I won't get into here, but what this is called in burnout literature is moral outrage. When your values and the values of your institution don't match. It's a major cause of burnout. The third kind of edge state, I think, when we're trying to be compassionate, but it's not real. So this is like compassion and drag, right? It's like kind of real and kind of not real. Vicarious trauma. So this is when uh, someone takes on someone else's suffering as his or her own. So this is like a person who works with the dying 
or a person who's a chaplain in the military where they hear terrible stories of pain and suffering. And it begins to get into you so you suffer the effects of another person's trauma vicariously. And in a lot of research around trauma, the person in a, in a conflict who often gets traumatized the deepest is not the victim and not the perpetrator, but the witness. So, so this is like a tertiary kind of trauma. Um, and then what happens for us is we get a kind of moral distress, karmic distress, where we want to take action, but we can't do anything anymore because we're so overwhelmed. We can't help, and we don't know what to do, and we're totally overwhelmed. And that's why people who do activist work really need practice. Because if you follow the media and the newspapers and watch what's going on in your community, it's so overwhelming. And if you're not at ease in yourself, then you're crushed, and you can't do anything. You can't help So you have to be at ease in yourself. And then you can do a lot. So the self includes the whole fabric of the cosmos. So you can't get into this thinking of like, well, I have to do some self-care, which is like a corollary practice to your job. They're intertwined. Self-care is also your job. Um, in response to being overwhelmed, um, there are usually three outlets we have. And the first, of course, which I just mentioned, is moral outrage. Just so angry at the situation you're in or at the situation someone else is in. The second is avoidance through substance abuse. I'm going to avoid what I'm feeling uh, with cocaine, alcohol. Uh, I just came from Miami, and the popular thing now in Miami is called bath salts. And um, bath salts. Yeah. Having a bath. It's like uh, methamphetamines cut with salt. Yeah. To make it cheaper. And I think you can do anything with it. You can smoke it, you can inject it, you can inhale it. um, That's a pretty good way to deal with um, pathological altruism, right? I'm going to go help everyone. And then next thing you know, at night, you're you're, uh, getting stoned, having a glass of wine, another glass of wine, another glass of wine. It's just a glass of wine. Well, you know, six months later, it's not just a glass of wine. Um, And the third uh, is numbness. Not just numbness, but elected numbness. You're choosing the numbness. The desire to be numb. And in yoga, we call this avidya. Wanting to be ignorant. Wanting to be numb. I translate avidya as elected numbness. This, this, volition, this, this volitional intention to be numb. It's, it is ignorance. But it's, it's showing that behind ignorance is a belief system that you're adhering to. A choice. Yeah, a choice. A choice to be numb. And you don't have to have uh, um, a drug addiction to be numb. We all get numb in the day, don't you? Maybe, right, you're just sitting there and like, you start dissociating a little bit. That's elected numbness. And I, I'm very sensitive to this 
because in when I was learning psychotherapy, we did I had a really, really good mentor. And she taught us to really use our own body when we're working with people. And that your body is a tool. So that when you're with somebody and you start getting into a mood that's not a mood you usually get into, to use that in your body to find out what's going on for them. So one of the ways that we learned how to use it at first was just when you work with people who dissociate. So you're working with someone, you're sitting across from them, we're talking, you know, having a dialogue. And then after a while, you just start to kind of get spacey and you think, oh, I, I really want some chocolate. You know? And then a few minutes later, I really would like some espresso. And then a few minutes later, you realize, I haven't been listening to anything, really, that they're saying. And actually, they're not even, they're just going around in circles. They're not even really there. So you're using your dissociation to recognize the other person's dissociating. Or it's like someone who really doesn't want to talk about a trauma, for example. Their tendency will be to get sleepy. You know, talking, oh, I'm just going to start yawning. And then you're getting sleepy. And one of, the, one of the things you do with them is you stay mindful. It's like, right now you're speaking, and I'm really getting sleepy. Are you feeling that? It's like, oh yeah, maybe it's the carpet in here. Like, no, no, no. Because I've been working all day, and I'm really, I'm really here, and, and I'm really getting... And then they might kind of clue and say, oh yeah, I'm kind of tuning out too a little bit. To come right back into the, the present moment. Again. Together. It's the shared moment. Together. So I mention these things because I think it's easy to get a little altruistic with the Heart Sutra. Say, okay, well I'm just going to abandon myself, I don't exist, and I'm just going to love everyone. You know? And then you get crushed. What's that? You gotta love yourself first. You don't even have to love yourself first. You don't even have to make this distinction between the self and the not self. You just have to take the oxygen first. You you don't you just have to take care of what's going on. And if what's going on is happening on this side, then that's what you're taking care of. And if what's happening is happening on that side, you have to take care of it. But I think if you get too much into, well, I have to do this first, then you might not be paying attention to what's going on in the present because you have a philosophy. I always have to take care of myself first. Do you know what I mean by that? So instead of a philosophy about it, what's happening in this moment? There's a wonderful person named uh, Basso, a monk asks him, what's your practice? And he responds, whatever's needed. Wouldn't that be nice if you could say that about your life? What's your practice? What's needed? But don't say that, because if you say that, then that's not really your response. That's one, another one of these corny things. You say, oh, you must be on the center of gravity. <laughs> A good part of our globe is going no. Good part of our community is going no. You don't even have to look past your family. I bet you can find people in your family who are going no. Hmm? Just choosing not to live. It's so painful when you're really choosing to live, to be with people who are choosing not to live. To see people put so much pressure on their children to be so successful. And then the children not really being able to live. But on the outside, it looks like they're living so much because they have seven lessons a week and they can speak four languages and they can, you know, play every sport. And also choosing not to live, to be numb. And then usually those kind of families are the ones where the parents and the kids never really have time together. Except in the car, on the way somewhere. (laughs) 
The next line of the Heart Sutra. So confusing what I've done. No ignorance and no end to ignorance. So that's like what we were just saying, you know. No ignorance, like saying, first I have to take care of myself. Well, break down that. And also, ignorance and no end to ignorance. There's no end to numbness. And there's no end to awakening. And they're two sides of exactly the same coin. And you know it, because when you practice, you see how you wake up. And when you practice, you also see how powerful is that part of you that wants to shut down again. I can see it in your face, you know. (laughs) I sit up here at the front of the room all week and I watch you in warrior pose, navasana, sitting still, sometimes really transforming what you're feeling. And sometimes just like you're going to shoot somebody. (laughs) Or yourself. No old age and death, no end to old age and death. No suffering, no cause of suffering, no extinguishing, no path, no wisdom, and no gain. We're going to get a little more into that next class. But I don't want to jump into the no gain section without saying that there is no personality behind your personality who's going to gain something from this. Isn't that how we practice all the time? That behind the senses is me. Here I am. Just look way behind my senses. Look deeply into my eyes, and you'll see my soul. And that soul is getting spiritual air miles as I'm practicing. You have like a card, and every time you swipe it, you do a good thing, it's like, I did that. (laughs) (laughs) Every month, like God emails you, you're up, your status. (laughs) It has a whole list, like an accounting of all the good things you did. So, no gain. No gain, and thus, you, Bodhisattva, lives Prajnaparamita. Don't you like this sense? You're living it. It's not like uh, you realize one day Prajnaparamita. You have to live it. You have to live it all the time. I do. I do. I have a moment of great brilliance and just complete stupidity. Luckily, I have this built-in mechanism in my body where whenever I have a moment that I'm brilliant, I always have a moment afterwards where I stub my toe. Okay? So yesterday, see this toe is all purple. Yesterday, I just had such a good sentence. It's like, I summed up the whole Heart Sutra. It was so good. And then I went to plug in my computer, and the whole thing dropped and landed on my big toe. <laughs> so I, do you have mechanisms like this? It's like you burn yourself. Or you, as soon as you, you, know, you get it, and then you stub your toe. So you might have your own. There's this woman who, who used to practice with us, Kate, who's, who's a really good dancer and choreographer. We used, whenever she, she worked really hard on Vakasana. And every time she'd have an accident... She broke her nose two or three times oh my God. doing that pose. And I've never met anybody who's broken her nose <laughs> doing that pose. And it's just that she would just get so focused and so intense about it and be so and she'd have this amazing pose, but she'd just always push it too far. <laughs> and then she'd fall on her on her face. You know. And uh, she doesn't practice anymore. <laughs> it's probably good for her nose. You know. So are there any comments or questions before we, before we wrap up that, that section? I just want to say that um, for the edge states, uh, the song yeah. called Persona is a really good film. It explores all those. Persona. Yeah, right. I know that film. Okay. Thanks. Somebody else? Questions, comments?
Yes. Um, with the six sense organs mm -hmm. um, and consciousness, I'm just wondering if you could elaborate because it seems that the, the mind organ um, it needs to be paired with the five others for the five others to exist. You yeah. can walk down the street and not smell the coffee if you're thinking about your trip in Japan, you know, for example. Right. And so like, you need to be here to sense yeah. here. And the being here, like, can you talk about how that, like, it's the mind that needs to sort of be here for the senses to be active? Does the mind need to be here for the senses to be here? I don't know. Could you elaborate on that? Can I feel you? Like, could I smell if, if my mind wasn't here? Would I, would I be able to identify smell? Know that I'm smelling without that pairing? I don't know. What do you think? I mean, if you, if you really check out the experience... The, the, the term that's used for sense organs is doors, sense doors. I like to use the term sense media, but it, it's, which, which is a kind of door. It's like a gate. Right? So imagine there's a house, and it has six windows, right? So there's like an ear window, a nose window, okay? In one second, 64 times, you're running around in there having experience. It happens so fast. But in mindfulness practice, you can slow down enough, just paying attention to one sense organ at a time, to start to see how the sense organ and sense object make contact. You can see that. And there is taste. And then the mind comes and decides about the taste. But there's an experience of taste, I think, before it's happening to you. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, Just like you can have an experience of the knee in pain before it's your knee in pain. Right. So when you said um, paying attention, did yeah. you mean like with breath awareness or did you mean with mind organ? And are, are those two things different? Because I feel like they're different. Is awareness happening in the mind? I feel like it's not. You feel like it's not? Yeah. Uh-huh. So in the Yoga Sutra... There's a vocabulary created where consciousness and awareness are not the same thing. Which I don't want to get too far into now because it's a different text. But where consciousness is that moment-to-moment -moment awareness happening. right? That's changing all the time. That's chitta. And then behind that is an awareness that's not changing. Yeah, but... But the experience of that is a little hard to talk about. And the words wreck it. Because then it makes you feel like, well, then Purusha is this thing that's watching. And that's not what it feels like. <laughs> you see. So it's an interesting question. I don't really want to respond to it with my opinion. I would rather just check, like, check it out. Can... can What's the, what? And the way is to start with mind. What is mind consciousness? And then and then check out one other organ, like uh, taste. Can there be taste before I get a hold of it? And then see. Well, as soon as I know there's taste, then there's a sense of me, again. And that's the mind function. But also, can there be taste after you get a hold of it? Because if our tendency get a hold of it and our practice is to like okay then let it go does that make sense what do you mean um, you're saying um, can there be taste before you get well whose taste it? happening to but could you let go of the self once you once the self who would let go of the self can, can our practice um, whose practice <laughs> <laughs> so you're positing that there's this Lena there that's going to do this but the hearts are just saying no. No, 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 no. There's just this happening. And it feels like it happens to a me, and that's really healthy. But it's not. 
And then the mind comes in, well, how is it not? <laughs> Which is, I think, what you're asking. But check it out, go further. So another way in Theravada Buddhism, how they talk about it sometimes, I think this comes out of the, the Burmese tradition. They talk about the six senses are like six railway stations. And your life is the train. And the train is leaving those stations. And your life is going to all these interesting places, but it always originates in these stations. In these stations. So if you want to look at any part of your life, you have to trace that railroad back into those six main stations. That's an interesting metaphor to check out. So just pick one, like sound, and really meditate on sound. And who is hearing? Who's, who's listening? And then see what happens. And see what the mind wants to do with what's happening. And that's how you can understand the mind, mind organ. So, frustrating, huh? Is there awareness what Shuryu Suzuki calls big mind? Unfortunately. Because then you have this idea that you have this big mind. I, I like to call it, and I got this idea from Shuryu Suzuki, religious feeling. It's a certain feeling for the process of life. It's bigger than big mind. It's religious feeling. Which is very small. So it can only happen in a moment. So basically it all comes down to the fact that we can do a lot more loving. I think. All of us. A lot more loving. Because the thing that shuts down loving is just this constant feeling that everything that's going on and all our troubles are happening to me. And the Heart Sutra is trying to open that up a little, saying, it's not your fault. Give yourself a break. Take care of yourself. Have a beer. Depending on who you are. If I have a beer, I fall asleep. That even when things are really tough, uh, uh, ease can arise. Even when things are really, really hard, there can be some ease lubricating it. Listen to the cries of the world. Avalokiteshvara is doing Listen to the cries of the world. And then see what response arises. And then you're doing deep prajnaparamita. The end. Even though there cannot actually be an end to this. Never started. Never ends. It's like light. You know, one day someone down the road is going to rediscover the light bulb, and plug in the electricity, and they're going to a filament with a filament, and they're going to say, "Oh my God, I've discovered light!" But you can't ever discover light. So it's the same with compassion. When when we settle, that's what starts to arise. It's so hard to explain how or why. Maybe we don't, that's not our job. We can just do a lot more loving, a lot more forgiving, have a lot more generosity uh, when we don't take things so personally. Mm-hmm. And the only way to take things not so personally is to know yourself and let yourself feel what's going on because that feeling is the whole world. It's not your feeling. It's the whole world. Just manifesting in that moment. Okay, let's have a little break and then three Dharma talks. (laughs) 